Escape Pod 87 January 4, 2007 Today's story, Author of Works, by Greg Van Eekhout Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. I had said last week that I don't really go in for New Year's resolutions. That's true in theory. In practice, it seems that change sometimes happens around this time anyway, whether or not I make a big point of it, or perhaps because I don't. Sometimes it's the small things that institute change. I got a lot of good things done in 2006, but one of the things I completely neglected was my own writing. I certainly wrote a lot. If you count every email, online post, escape pod intro, etc., it's probably in the vicinity of a half million to a million words. I don't recall writing a single word of prose fiction. I had my hands full with other people's fiction, and I don't begrudge that. It's fun, and I'm almost certainly doing more for the genre this way. But after a while, I started to get the itch again. My problem was the one that every amateur writer in the world complains about, finding the time. But then I remembered what every pro writer says. If it's important to you, you make the time. The small change is this. Last year, Don Drake at Dreaming Mind sent me a gorgeous, really big, blank journal. That's how he initially got my attention. A book like that is just calling to be filled up with something, and I'm a lousy diarist, so my goal every single day this year is to fill another page with the zeroth draft of my next novel. I'll talk later on about what a zeroth draft means to me. It's what worked to get my last book written. It's kind of a deliberate approach to develop plot, but not prose. And just to keep myself honest, I'm going to take pictures of the pages and post them online. My album site is yilly.smugmug.com. Any one of you is welcome to stay on my butt if I don't keep it up. I don't think any force in the world is capable of deciphering my handwriting, so I'm not particularly worried about giving away the story. I'm telling you this not just as an invitation to harass me, but in case it's useful to anyone else. If you've been meaning and meaning to write, but never quite sit down to do it, perhaps this would work for you. Get a book, fill a page with notes every day, post pictures. Keep it up until you have a complete plot, then sit down at a keyboard and make it into a novel. It's kind of a cross between Morning Pages and National Novel Writing Month. And what the hell, if you want to do this, I'll set up a topic in the forums for it. Oh, we have forums again, by the way. More on that in the outro. And that's enough about writing. Our story this week is, well, it's a story about writers. Sort of. A little bit. We're pleased to present Authorverks by Greg Van Eekout. Greg took the title early of Most Run Escape Pod author with his flash stories, excuse me, story grenades, and he continues to be one of our favorites. He lives in Arizona and has lots of works in Asimov's, FNSF, Realms of Fantasy, and Year's Best volumes. This particular story appeared in Amazing Stories in 2005, and is also available in his chapbook, Show and Tell and Other Stories. So, pour yourself a big glass of juice. It's story time! Authorverks by Greg Van Eekout I was only there to steal ideas. The place was done up cozy and old-fashioned. Floor-to-ceiling shelves of dark cherry, ladders on brass rails, and busts of famous authors I'd never heard of perched on glass display cases. I wandered the narrow aisles, occasionally pulling volumes from the shelves to see if they were real. Turned out they were. Authorverks had spent some bank on decor. May I be of assistance? 
I turned to see a tweedy little guy with a pair of tortoiseshell glasses pinching his nose. I'm not sure what I'm looking for, really. It's my first time in a shop like this. He steepled his fingers and looked merry. A tour, then, to acquaint yourself with our services. I tried not to smile too widely. Why, that would be simply Beanie. He took me into a room with big leather club chairs and dark oak paneling. Framed antique maps hung on the walls beside smoke-darkened paintings of hounds and ducks. A bunch of shabby geezers sat around the room munching little finger sandwiches and drinking various brown drinks from cut-glass tumblers. They all seemed mildly startled when the bookseller and I entered, as if awoken from a nap. This was Arthur Verx's showroom, the bookworm's equivalent of the locker room my company used. The first five minutes are free in order to help you make your selection, said the bookseller. Just walk up to any one of them and start a conversation. And after the first five, I was hoping to get a quick summary of their pricing plan. The bookseller pursed his lips and smiled. Well, sir, that depends on precisely what you want. It sounded sort of dirty the way he said it. I didn't recognize any of the units, except Shakespeare, who was staring into a mirror. He kept muttering the same few lines over and over, rehearsing, but his accent was funny, and I couldn't understand what he was saying. Off in a corner, a barrel-chested man in a fishing vest worked at hand-tying a fly. The real reason for not committing suicide, the fisherman said to nobody in particular, is because you always know how swell life gets again after the hell is over. Yep, life is a dunghill, and I'm the cock that gets on it to crow. At a small round table, a man in a roomy black suit shuffled a deck of cards. His head was big and lopsided, and his mustache drooped. The drink glass beside him was almost empty. I sat opposite him and said, Hey. He speaks of death as though it were jest, said lopsided, indicating the fisherman. I tell you this. Even to the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. That's fun, I said, but I don't think he heard me, as he had gone into a rather breathless speech about loss and decay, and he was overall a bit wobbly. I read him as he talked. My nasal sucked in chemical signatures and sent the data to my oculars, which were busy taking in EM bleed and spectroscopics. At first analysis, lopsided wasn't much special. A smart EAI housed in flesh-weave organomech body. A decent unit, but not superior to anything my company offered. I will admit that he smelled better than our guys. The anti-necrotics that keep organomechs fresh always give off a weird butterscotch odor. But this one just smelled like a regular guy. A guy who'd been drinking and playing cards all night long, granted. I noticed all the writers were drinking, and wondered if that was what masked the butterscotch. Not a tactic that would work for my company, unfortunately, except maybe with our Mickey Mantle. The Organomex stopped shuffling the deck, and when he did, his hand shook a little. Perhaps you'd like to hear a story. No, thanks, I said to him, and then to the bookseller. But there is a writer I might be interested in if you've got him in stock. He's fairly obscure. Obscurity is what separates the men from the kittens in the encounter entertainment business. Consider my company's corner of it. Any shop can deal to a customer who comes in off the street wanting to take a few catches from Joe Montana, or maybe go a few rounds with Ali. The boxers always come in full of big talk, but in the end they usually choose to go up against the old, fat, punch-drunk version. 
But let's say a customer wants to play some one-on-one against, oh, Mara Book Hartley. Who the fuck is Mara Book Hartley? Exactly. Mara Book Hartley played power forward with the Celtics for five seasons before blowing out both of his knees. He never won a championship, never made the All-Star game, and nobody ever saw his face on a cereal box. But my company has Amara Book Hartley. To tell you the truth, I said, I don't read much. But there was this one writer my 10th grade English teacher gave us. Sort of a paranoid guy, you know, way out there. The bookseller remained a model of patience. And who would that be? I scratched my chin. I don't remember his name, but he was... You know, I did something with my hands to indicate way out there. Perhaps you remember a title of one of his works, the bookseller said, hopefully. No, but I remember one of the covers. It was a guy's head in profile. He was orange. Not like he had orange skin, but as if the whole world was orange, so he was orange too. The bookseller nodded encouragement. I was actually having a lot of fun being a deliberate pain in the ass. There were these buildings in the background. I went on. Skyscrapers, only they were carved out of giant vegetables, and in the windows you could see little pairs of glowing blue eyes. That would be Windows to the Eaten World, said the bookseller, by Nathan P. Horn. Okay, now I was a little impressed. I blinked hard to activate my nasals and oculars to see what the bookseller was made of, and he read as standard human. Horn, yeah, that's the guy. Do you have him in stock? The bookseller's smile held the tiniest edge. Of course, sir. This is Authorverks. Arrangements were made for me to meet Nathan P. Horn in an on-premises motel room set, the sort of place where they probably staged encounters with writers of noir detective stories and neon gothics. It was perfect for a Horn story, too. The wallpaper was seasick green with black vine work. A portable Olivetti typewriter rested on a desk, and on the floor beside it was a waste paper basket filled with crumpled paper balls. I picked one up and unballed it, then read the smudgy type. Day 5. Astrogator 3rd Class Williard thinks I'm his mother. I'm worried about the outcome of the mission. It doesn't end well for anyone concerned. The whole business with the typewriter and the discarded pages was a nice touch of authenticity, I thought. I checked out the rest of the room— a pea-green sofa, a matching armchair, a television set on a bureau across from the couch, a few splotchy paintings on the walls that probably concealed the environmentals. There was no honor bar or refrigerator in the room, but a thoughtful somebody had left a six-pack of beer on the nightstand. I liberated one from its plastic ring and examined it. Aluminum can, room temperature, with no keep-cold strip. Very authentic. A toilet flushed and Nathan P. Horn came out of the bathroom. He zipped up his fly and greeted me by grabbing the beer can from my hands, returning to the bathroom, and pouring it down the toilet. Glug, glug, went my beer. You don't want to drink that, he said. I got up and leaned against the bathroom doorway. Why not? Was that your beer? Did you bring it here yourself? Do you know where it came from? He was a pale man with sharp cheekbones and a roughly trimmed gray goatee. In a rumpled blue blazer, untucked shirt, and ascot printed with little kanji characters, he looked like a college professor who'd spent the night under police lights. It was there when I got here, I said, pointing to the now-empty beer can in his hand. He looked at me a moment, then shrugged. Well, so much for you. 
Are you wearing implants? I had just been about to activate my nasals and oculars. No. He moved past me and went to the window. I used to have a dog that could sniff implants. He'd run in circles, yapping every time he smelled bugs. Died of exhaustion, poor thing. A pleasurable wave of recognition went through me. Miniature Poodle, I said. His name was Arky Barky. Gripping the window casing, Horn tensed up. How did you know that? I read that story, I said. The sniff. He faced me, taking me in. After a moment, his shoulders relaxed. I can't believe I actually put that in a story. That was my downfall. Always had to be the whistleblower. Always had to point out where they'd left the seam showing. He ran his hand through his hair and barked a laugh. For Christ's sake, I put my name on those stories. I nodded. At my company, we called this phase the warm-up. This is where you'd probably ask Jordan to talk about the last shot he took to win the 98 championship, or maybe where Babe Ruth told you a dirty joke. The customers enjoyed it, and it also served a practical purpose. It let the product get a feel for you, get a sense for what you wanted, for the context of the encounter. It made everything seem less programmed. I returned to the couch and left Horn standing at the window. You know, you're the first writer I ever got, I said. My tenth-grade English teacher unencrypted a bunch of your books and gave me copies. I read them all. I just sort of went nuts that year and read them all. Horn's lips formed a thin smile. If you ever see your teacher again, Horn said, do thank her for violating my copyrights, won't you? My books were already cheap as Mexican gum. I pressed on. I've probably read everything you ever wrote. All the novels, all the short stories, even the stuff you published under other names. Horn took a seat in the chair opposite me. He crossed his legs and scratched his beard, studying me as though I were a chessboard. Did you read the detective stories I published as Victor C. Mirun? I ticked off titles. The Yellow Lady, The Blue Lady, The White Lady, Lady Red. He frowned. My work as Cody Hawk? The Westerns in Tales of the Badlands Monthly. I actually own paper copies of those. But they weren't really Westerns, were they? They were time travel stories if you knew to look for the clues. If Horn was impressed with my insight, he didn't show it. What about the Maxwell Trigg books? Those were men's adventure, and not very good, but I didn't tell Horn that. The Butcher Brigade series. I read all of those. I read books 18 and 21 twice. Each. But it's really your sci-fi stuff I like best. He leaned back in his chair and sighed. You stand there alone, partner. Those weren't even popular with science fiction fans. They wanted sweeping tales of galactic empires or stories about rugged heroes with math skills. Nobody ever quite knew what to make of my stuff. There was no anger in his voice, just disappointment. That and deep, soul-sagging fatigue. I could picture a younger version of Horn in a room like this, late at night, the neon liquor sign outside the window bathing his manuscript red, typing a message in a bottle throwing it out to sea, knowing it would never reach shore. I'd never wanted to be a writer. Writers eat ketchup sandwiches, my dad always said. But if you can get through your life without shaking hands with futility, then pat yourself on the fanny and count yourself one lucky stick. I considered yawning, then, to mask a hard-blink activation of my implants, but Horn continued to look at me with his slightly glassy eyes. So I just smelled him. Not using the nasals, but just a regular, unenhanced whiff. He smelled like a lot of things. Old sweat, onions, menthol. 
but not antinecrotic butterscotch. I launched into my next bit, which I'd rehearsed that morning on the tram. What I liked about your stories is that you never knew where they were going. It had started off as a World War II military adventure, but then it would wind up being about android worms from another dimension out to steal Earth's dirt. It's like other writers' stories are bridges. There's a beginning, there's an end, and it's a pretty straight shot through. It might be a long bridge, or curvy, maybe, so you can't quite see the ending coming. But the trip basically makes sense. Your stories were different, though. You always blew up your bridges halfway across, and you'd have to swim for the banks, and you'd end up on some rock with weird lizards. On the verge of laughter, he looked at me. You're kidding, right? I pressed on with some stuff I hadn't rehearsed, even though I was embarrassed now. It's like, when you wake up in the morning, you think your day is about having bacon and eggs for breakfast, going to the post office, maybe getting a haircut, and then you find out your wife has cancer. So that's what your day was about all along, only you didn't know it. Or you wake up, and you think your day is about scoping out the competition, and you find yourself saying things that have been lying dormant in your head for 15 years, and you start to hear a thickening in your own voice, and you wonder what the hell is wrong with you. Like that. Did your wife die of cancer? He said. I'd shot my mouth off too much. No. What did she die of? What makes you think she's dead? Is she? I glared at him, and he glared at me, and I thought, not for the first time, that Organomex should have a conveniently accessible off switch. Darla was still alive, but she wasn't my wife anymore. She left me for some Finnish marketing fuck named Usko. Horn got up and examined an oil painting on the wall. It was some blurry thing like they made us look at in school. A little guy in a sombrero with a donkey, and a fat guy next to him on a horse. The sky behind them was the color of a tangerine. My wife died of cancer, he said. You wake up and your wife has cancer. Or you wake up and your wife's a robot spy. Either way, you're fucked. That's the point. And just because one thing can happen and the other can't, I said, nodding, doesn't make your stories any less real. Horn turned slowly. There was a dead look in his eyes. You don't think your wife could be a robot? Well, no, of course not, I spluttered. But it's a great, uh, whatchamacallit, a, a metaphor. A metaphor is just a condom that keeps you from catching life, he said, ribbed for your pleasure. But I was experiencing no pleasure. So far, my little mission had been a bust. I'd been hoping to take something useful back to my bosses that would translate to increased sales. Truth was, I hadn't really been pulling my weight at the job. Too many meetings I'd just stumbled through. Too many times I'd answered a question with a blank stare. I blamed Darla. Darla and her reindeer-herding, funny-boot-wearing marketing asshole. She turned my life sideways. I needed to do something to prove myself valuable to the company. To myself. If things didn't improve, I'd be demoted. They'd send me down to the stockroom or the janitor's closet. Or, shudder, the fluid recovery plant. The company had tacitly made it clear that they wouldn't trade my contract to another firm, no matter what. My parents had signed that damn thing when I was 14, the only way they could buy me a college education. On my end, I got a diploma and a guaranteed job with health and dental. And Bleacher Heaven got a servant for life. Horn lowered himself onto the couch beside me. Then he cupped his hands to my ear and leaned in very close. 
Help me escape, he whispered. His breath was hot in my ear. I pulled away from him. With a wink, he pitched forward and fell to the floor. He jerked about in some kind of seizure, and in a weird nasal voice said, Malfunction! Undergoing malfunction! Please notify bookseller! Malfunction! It was the dumbest and least helpful error message I'd ever heard. Cut that out, I snapped. Notify bookseller at once, Horn said mechanically. Organomic unit in danger of permanent damage! Give me a break and get off the floor. I know you're faking. Power overload! Danger! Oh, for Christ's sake. I sat there for a few moments more, watching Horn thrash about before I stepped over him and went to the door. Outside the motel room set was a long corridor with a drinking fountain at the end of the hall. Hey! I shouted. Bookseller! You got a problem here! After a moment, the bookseller appeared around the corner. Do you require assistance, sir? I jerked a thumb toward the room behind me. In there, your organomech is pretending to be busted. The bookseller frowned. I think he felt insulted. Take a look yourself. He moved past me into the room, and there was a plasticky impact sound, followed by a heavy thud. Suspecting what had happened, I groaned and made myself go back into the room. Yep, the bookseller lay face down on the floor, arms at his sides, palms up. Beside his head was the radio from the nightstand, broken to bits. A scattering of transistors and plastic shards were sprinkled in the nap of the carpet. Horn calmly turned off the television. It had to be done, he said in an unconvincing, soothing tone. Your encounter was almost over. He'd have been coming to collect you soon. I knelt down at the bookseller's side. You can't just smash things into people's heads, you know. You can kill them doing that. Horn's eyes widened. Really? But, but I just wanted to knock him out. I didn't want to hurt him. It's the knocking out part that hurts them. The bookseller's pulse was strong in his throat. He moaned softly and moved his feet. Who the hell programmed you, anyway? Horn shrugged. He looked stricken. So now what? I said. You switch clothes with the bookseller and we just stroll out the front door? Never mind us, boys. Just stepping out for a little lunch. Back before you start missing us? Horn shook his head. That wouldn't work. I've got an anti-theft device buried in my torso. Even I don't know exactly where. If I leave the confines of the shop, I'll become paralyzed. He swallowed hard. Of course he would. We use Neurolocks on our product, too. And Horn shared something else with our product that, for some reason, in this case, surprised me. Um, so, I began. You know you're not human. It seemed a harsh and tactless thing to say aloud. Horn looked at me without anger. Of course I do. I'm programmed to be Nathan P. Horn. I'm not a character in a Nathan P. Horn story. And thank God, those poor jerks were always crazy. I nodded, and then gestured toward the bookseller. We have to call medics. We will, but not from here. Not till we're away from the shop. Horn, you said it yourself. You can't leave. Step outside and you'll freeze up. Only Authorverks will have a specific chemical key to relieve your paralysis. Horn smiled a snotty, superior smile. He had a plan, of course, and I knew I would hate hearing it. He peeled back his scalp with a wet ripping noise, revealing the top of his mint-green skull. It was stamped with a Samasis Robotics logo. Just as I suspected. Finished knockoff. We're not taking my whole body, Horn said. Just my brain. A brain without a body? You want to be a paperweight? You could get me a new body. 
I know who you work for. The bookseller told me. Authorworks runs facials on everyone who comes through the door, and when you turned up as an employee of Bleacher Heaven, the boss told me to give you a good encounter, out of professional pride. So far, I hadn't found this encounter very impressive. Why should I help you escape? I'd be guilty of theft, and industrial espionage. It made me a janitor, or a fluid reclaimer. Panic crept into my voice at the very thought. Juice boys make minimum wage. Horn stroked his goatee, very full of his criminal mastermind self. If you leave me here, he said, I'll tell everyone how you clocked the bookseller. I had tried to pry loose my brain. I mean, who else could have done it? Me? That would be crazy. He had it all worked out. He could use the bookseller's own keys, right from his trouser pockets, to wipe the surveillance files clean. And then he told me how to remove the walnut-sized part of his brain that contained his memory and personality. The rest, the motor stuff, we'd leave behind. They'll come looking for you, I argued. They'll know where to find both of us. Yeah, well, they want to go down that road, Warren said. And we can start talking about how much Authorverks has stolen from the love shack. The damn plan would work. I'd walk away with more than intel. I'd walk away with product. A demonstrably more real product than my company offered. If nothing else, a product that didn't smell like butterscotch. And I knew it wouldn't make a bit of difference. I knew it wouldn't compensate for my poor general job performance. I knew that. But Jesus, I had to try something. I looked at Horn. I looked at the unconscious bookseller. Arthur Verks may have solved the butterscotch problem, I said, but you guys don't know dick about entertainment. The thing with stealing is, if you steal something and you don't get caught, you're lucky. If you steal something, you don't get caught, and other people make money off the thing you've stolen, you're a hero. But if you steal something, and you don't get caught, but nobody can figure out how to make money from it, you're just a juice boy. Good morning, Marabook, I say as I enter the locker room, my paper juice boy coveralls rustling. Sitting on the long bench before the row of lockers, Marabook looks up at me. Good morning. I want my amino pie. I place a plastic bag containing Marabook's breakfast on the bench. Coffee, chocolate donuts, two menthol cigarettes. Frowning, Marabook laces up his big, boat-like sneakers. The size of his own feet never ceases to disturb him. Any encounters scheduled today? I break the news to him. No encounters today. Just as there had been no encounters the day before, just as there would be no encounters tomorrow. Marabook Hartley still has some basketball left in him, but as an encounter personality, he's finished. His patter unsettles our customers. He keeps trying to convince them that their headaches are caused by sentient parasites transmitted through mother's milk. Things get screwed up. The old Marabook's brain, altered and futzed, is sitting in a tennis player's body. The tennis player's personality is now inside a NASCAR racer. The NASCAR racer has gotten too close to a mag lifter in the stockroom and needed a new brain anyway. I try to keep things balanced, using maintenance schedules to switch bodies and brains. Every brain's a person, kind of, and if you shut them off or don't give them a body, it's too much like killing. Mostly, though, I'm just screwing things up worse for everybody. So no appointments today, Marabook says, fishing a donut out of the bag. What are we going to do, then? I want my amino pie. And before I can open my mouth, he snaps, And we're not talking about Darla. It's over. That bridge is all blown up. 
Swim or drown, buddy. Easy for him to say. Darla came back to me. Darla left me. And came back to me. And left me. It's my fault. My ability to make her miserable has reached a professional level. She's living in Oxford now with an exotic matter physicist. And every time I think I'm over her, she sends me four pages of the most beautiful, erotic poetry I've ever read. It's hard to swim for it when you've got cement shoes dragging you down. I want my amino pie, Marabook says. I didn't break out of Arthurworks just to be stuck here the rest of my life. Give me my amino pie. Aminopyridin hydrochloride is the key ingredient in the antidote to the neurolock that keeps Organomex from walking free. Shut up and eat your donuts, I tell him. The stockroom is a dry, cool chamber with tracks along the ceiling. The plastic bags that hang from the tracks contain bodies. It's sort of a cross between a morgue and a dry cleaners. With business sagging the way it is, we need to liquidate some stock. Tough times for the encounter entertainment industry. Thanks to all those clean air and dirt laws, people are starting to go outside. One of the Tijuana sex houses is willing to take four Organomex off our hands for pesos on the dollar, and I toy with the idea of shipping them Marabook Hartley, just because he pisses me off. But they're not interested in seven-foot black guys when the flavor of the month in Tijuana is average-sized, middle-aged Caucasian males. I lower four bodies onto a cart and roll them into the fluid recovery plant. You have to be careful when you set the Organomex down on the slab, because the poor darlings bruise easily until you drain them of fluid. I stick the hoses in their arms, start the drainers, and the air smells like butterscotch and rotting meat. The Organomex, three baseball players and a golfer, stir and murmur on the slab. Don't, the golfer moans. He looks at me, right at me. Don't! I sip from my thermos, and soon I smell like gin. The Organomex stop moving after a while, and when each has exhaled a long, thin, final breath, I shut down the drainers, remove the tubes, and wrap the bodies in plastic for shipping. The printer spits out labels for each unit, with name, sport, team, position, serial number, height, and weight. It's when I apply the label to the golfer, and see how close his physical stats are to mine, that I get a terrible idea. Can I confess something? No, says Marabook. He transfers items from his locker to a duffel bag, considering each tube sock and can of foot powder as if he were a surgeon examining his scalpels. I'm scared shitless, I say, but I'm looking forward. To the future, you know. I think it might be okay. Marabook shuts his locker with a bang. The future's just a fantasy land we can't stop believing in. Over in the stockroom, another Organomech ought to be waking up about now. He'll follow an impulse that will take him to the bathroom mirror, and staring into it will trigger his new personality initialization routine. He'll study his drying, plastimold face, slowly realizing what he is, who he is, and hopefully accepting it. With a resigned sigh, he'll don paper coveralls with the Bleacher Heaven logo printed across the back in baseball-style script. Shoulders hunched, head down, he'll stumble into the fluid recovery plant and go about the work of draining bodies of their life and pumping new life into them. I wonder how long it'll take before he starts drinking. I don't think anybody will be able to tell he's not me. The old work is pretty good. And I don't have much of a personality left for anybody to scrutinize.
Besides, nobody ever comes down to make small talk with a juice boy. By the time the Tijuana sex house complains about being shorted one Organomec golfer, I'll be long gone. Marabug zips his bag, a sound like a little scream. You ready to go through with this? he asks. Don't want one of those amino pies first, just for courage. Don't need it. What I need is a positive balance in my bank account, a place to stay, a friend to depend on. What I have instead is the company of a paranoid pulp writer and a seven-foot basketball player's body. I open the back door. The rats ignore us as we walk down the alley. Marabook steps carefully, as if through a minefield. And even when it's clear the neurolock's been deactivated, he still looks poised for disaster. God knows how we'll survive out here. God knows how anyone does. But everyone should, at least, have a chance to swim for the rocks where the weird lizards live. And that was our story. I tried to think of a clever tagline for this one, then started to think, what if I was just a simulation of myself thinking of a clever tagline? Would it make any difference if I knew I was a simulation? Would the tagline be any more or less clever? And then I thought about Irish whiskey. I'm feeling better now. We'll get to feedback, but first, the announcement that at least several of you have been waiting for. We finally, at long last, have discussion forums again. Those of you who have been hanging around a while knew that we had some pretty good discussion boards back in the day. Then I stopped feeding them properly, and they got drowned in a sea of spam. We brought them back with different software, and this time we have an active team of moderators to keep things civil and spam-free. This is all at forum.escapeartists.info. Of course, we'll have a link to it on the site, so check it out and join the fun. Our story a few weeks ago was Tobias Bacal's dryad migration piece, Smooth Talking. Of the feedback we had in the blog, most people like the story. Almost everyone liked the reading by Steve Anderson, though I'm not quite sure whether Ichigo's comment, am I the only one who thought that Tom Selleck was reading this week's story, was positive or negative. A few people found the story trite, or its environmental themes heavy-handed. And the Funniest Line Award goes to Fig Newton, who said, How incredibly speciesist! Only accepting trees as having the right to live if they carry specter-like proto-human forms within them. But what really threw me about the feedback to this story was how many people expressed surprise and relief at a story that had a happy ending. That got me wondering, are escape pod stories really perceived as being that downbeat on average? It certainly wasn't an expectation I'd intended to set. I'd love to know what you think. Perhaps a discussion in our new forums might be in order. Meanwhile, Escape Pod is released on a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. All other rights are reserved by our authors. Earl Newton wants me to declare that Have Fun is reserved by Steve Ely, but it isn't. For the best in audio horror, check out our sister podcast, Pseudopod, at pseudopod.org. And if you have the urge to shoot lasers through our stories, you can get them in optical disc form at poddisc.com. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. If you ever do have to swim for the island where the weird lizards live, Daikaiju has the theme music for it at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. I want to close with a line from Philip K. Dick. In his novel, The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, he wrote, I mean, after all, you have to consider that we're only made out of dust. That's admittedly not much to go on, and we shouldn't forget that. But even considering, 
I mean, it's a sort of bad beginning. We're not doing too bad. So I personally have faith that even in this lousy situation we're faced with, we can make it. You get me? We'll see you next week. And have fun. <laughs>